0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, July 9th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular pan-african newswire report will have dispatches on the response to the deployment of cluster munitions in the Pentagon proxy war in Ukraine the fighting in the Republic of Sudan is having regional implications Ethiopia is deliberating on the creation of another provincial state in the horn of African nation and the United Republic of Tanzania has announced investments in uh, primary and secondary schools In the second hour, we look in detail at the security crisis in the Republic of Sudan. Later, we'll review a discussion on the status of the Republic of South Sudan after 12 years of independence. Finally, we hear a briefing from the African National Congress on the current state of the economy. Then we will review a media briefing with the Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. These and other issues will be brought to you during the course of our program. So stay tuned. I will take our musical interlude in the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania. We'll feature the orchestra Safari so Sound. Let's listen
2: in. <laughs>
3: Huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> <More> <laughs> I am a little
2: Na mo kibo ye, loko boemi, generazione la se sha, tamoringa di baku ya manamoto. Na mo kilio, toyaki bafaki, bafake to daliko bota na Oh 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 Chango Cala. Chango No, no, morning am going This is the case of the police, 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 the Patikana, Pimi, when you tell in a Patikana, when in a Patikana, Saori Awangu, wangu, wangu Mutoto, Teo Puteka, Oke Toputeka, Amalita Misa, Animo, Polizia, O Polizia, O Quelli Wakanda, Quelli Wakanda, Oni Patekutua. I'm <muchas> Aluna oh, aluna kata, aluna aluna oh, aluna kata, aluna 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 kata, aluna aluna oh, aluna kata, aluna aluna oh, aluna kata, aluna aluna kata, aluna aluna Meet me when bueno, you're not possessed. kulia, na kulia, ¿Vale, na a duna e mi me puja kubweleza si kini wa tu kelele Tonto hama kupi ya ne wa kwa ko a duna E shakaza, diripika pawa nanga kubizia Mwame kubundua Mi me puja kubweleza tu sha uri ya mi he me a good friend of the Shaori Ade, a good friend of the the Shaori Ade, a Kwa kwa durana shangaza, ili pika kwa gaka kuzia. Kwa mepuko dua, ni mepuka kupenda kushauri ane, kushauri ane ni saga ni toto Yani tiao I'm a a Paticana. o I'm going Aluna, yeah. Aluna, oh. aluna, I do aluna, know. Yeah. Aluna, don't Aluna, I yeah. oh. aluna, not Aluna, I don't know. I don't Aluna, Na liana la kusema o,
3: la kusema la kusema la
2: kusema E aluna Que aluna <Susurra> moja moja que quiere ver, Aluna don't know. I aluna not Aluna I don't know. aluna do Aluna know. I do Aluna know. aluna Aluna
1: Welcome back and uh, that was music from the United Republic of Tanzania, uh, the band Safari Sound. Uh, that's taken from a live uh, television broadcast from 1980. You're listening to the Pin Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast fourth sunday uh, july 9th uh, 2023 and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown detroit right now we want to move into our pan-african newswire segment and these are some of the headlines in today's pan-african newswire the united states uh, decided to supply cluster munitions to ukraine uh, out of despair uh, but the move uh, won't affect russia's determination to achieve the goals of this special military operation. That was, uh, according to Russian ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, he said this on Friday. He said that, quote, cluster munitions are a desperate gesture. This measure tells the story that the U.S. and its satellites have realized they are powerless. However, they do not want to admit their own failures and the failure of the attempts of Ukrainian forces to conduct a Offensive against Russian regions, hence, this latest madness on their part. unquote uh, The ambassador said. The diplomat uh, said that he believes that by raising the states in the Ukrainian conflict, uh, Washington is bringing humanity closer to a global conflict. The current level of American provocations is indeed off the charts, uh, bringing humanity closer to a new world war. The United States is so obsessed uh, with the idea. Of defeating russia that it does not realize the gravity of his actions they are only increasing the number of victims and prolonging the agony of the kiev regime he went on to say the ambassador stated that washington turned a blind eye to civilian casualties paid no regard to the concerns of u.s secretary general antonio Guterres, and shrugged off uh, the objections uh, from its allies Quote, the cruelty and cynicism with which Washington has approached the issue of transferring lethal weapons to Kiev is astounding. The administration completely ignored experts, human rights activists, and lawmakers that voiced the thesis that the move would be inhumane. It turned a blind eye to civilian casualties. Now there is a risk that these submunitions will be blowing up innocent civilians for many years ahead because of what the U.S. is doing, and Tonov said. He said he believes that the funneling of Western weapons into Ukraine will not be able to affect Russia's efforts to achieve the goals of a special military operation, which aims to eradicate threats to the security of the Russian Federation, including Nazism that has been nurtured in Ukraine. Now, cluster bombs can contain hundreds of submunitions. When the bomb is detonated in the air, these sub-munitions are scattered over an area of tens of square meters. Some of them do not explode immediately and remain on the ground, posing a threat to civilians long after the conflict has ended. The Convention on Cluster Munitions, which, has adopted, which was adopted in 2008, has been joined by 111 countries, and another 12 have signed but not yet ratified it. According to the International Human Rights Organization, Human Rights Watch, the proportion of unexploded submunitions is usually significantly higher than what is already stated. And in other news uh, taking place uh, in Sudan, uh, the conflict wages on, and uh, some uh, indicate uh, within the United Nations that the country is on the brink of a full-scale civil war stabilized the entire region. The United Nations warned this earlier today after an airstrike on a residential area killed around two dozen civilians. The Ministry of Health reported that 22 people were killed and a large number of wounded among the civilians. From what is described as an airstrike yesterday on Khartoum's sister city, Abdurman, in the district of Dar es Salaam, which means House of Peace in Arabic. After nearly three months of war between Sudan's rival generals, the airstrike is the latest incident to provoke outrage. Around 3,000 people have been killed in the conflict. Survivors have reported a wave of sexual violence and witnesses have spoken of ethnically targeted killings. There has been widespread looting and the UN warned of possible crimes against humanity in the Darfur region. A video posted by the Health Ministry on Facebook Showed apparently dismembered bodies lying partly covered on the ground after the airstrike. Several women were among the victims. The paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, fighting the regular army, claim that the airstrikes killed 31 people. Since the war began, paramilitaries have established bases in residential areas, and they have been accused of forcing civilians from their homes. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres earlier today. Condemned uh, the airstrike on Abdurman, uh, which he said reportedly killed at least 22 people and wounded dozens, his deputy spokesman Farhan Haq uh, said in a statement. The terrorists remain deeply concerned that the ongoing war between the armed forces has pushed Sudan to the brink of a full scale civil war, potentially destabilizing the entire region. And you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan African Newswise segment of uh, the Pan African Journal and uh, in other news uh involving uh what is happening uh in uh, the Republic of South Sudan and of course uh the inc- incidents there uh, have been escalating as well and uh, if you want to uh, follow these issues all you need to do is go uh to uh the uh, Pan African Newswire and you can read uh some of the uh, stories that we cover here over uh, the Pan-African News Wire. And uh, in other news, in Ethiopia, after the Upper House of Parliament uh, five days ago approved the creation of a 12th regional state after the latest referendum for greater self-rule in Africa's second most populous country, Voters and part of the Ethnically Diverse Southern Nations, Nationalities, and People's Region, the SNNPR, overwhelmingly supported carving out their own state in a referendum in February. The creation of South Ethiopia Region, the third new state created since Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018, was approved with unanimous votes by the Upper House, it said in a statement. Following the desire expressed uh, through a referendum by the six zones and five special districts, the House of Federation has in today's regular session decided to have them be organized in a regional state. It said it is just the latest state to break away from the SNNPR as a mosaic of minority ethnic groups in the country's south and scenes of attention and violence in recent years. Idama separated in 2019 and Southwest in 2021. Shortly after taking power in the early 1990s, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front Coalition government divided Ethiopia into nine semi-autonomous regions organized along ethnic and linguistic lines. In 1995, there was a constitution which required officials to organize a referendum for any ethnic group that wanted to form a new region, within the federal system, but the former government ruled by Tigray, a minority ethnic elite, squashed such efforts, sometimes violently, during the 27-year rule. Abiy's appointment in 2018, following several years of anti-government protests, breathed new life into autonomy bids and identity-based claims. In recent years, the country of 110 million has been troubled by sometimes deadly conflicts over these administrative divisions. And associated disputes over uh, the territory and finally in the east african state of tanzania the government has released 208 billion tanzanian shillings about 86 million u.s dollars for the construction of new public secondary schools across the country to accommodate new entrants in january of 2024 an official said this yesterday the gracias deputy minister of state in the president's office responsible for regional administration and local government said the new public secondary schools will be built in all district councils to accommodate form one students scheduled to start studies in january of 2024 a statement by the prime minister's office said uh, Jembe, uh revealed the release of the money when he was asked by prime minister kassim majulewa uh, to address a public rally in kunwa a village in Mtwara rural district council Jenbei, uh, who has who was on the prime minister's official visit in Mtwara region said district council directors have been directed to oversee the construction of the schools uh, by november 2023 uh, for his part majulewa uh, directed the state-run tanzania building agency The contractor for the new schools uh, to make sure that they completed the task within the scheduled time with that we're going to conclude uh, the pan-african newswire segment of uh, the pan-african journal and in concluding this segment of our program we want to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people uh, throughout the continent and the world. The PrEF agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan African NewsWire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
4: There, yeah, Gate Mouth, Brown, all the Beat Boys, and uh, once again, ladies and gentlemen, on the Beat tonight, we have a lovely young lady from Beaumont,
5: Texas. Her name, Miss Barbara Lynn. <laughs>
4: Don't you go away. Thank you so much for being with us. you too much. And now, would you step right over here? We're going to make you work
5: again just a little bit. May I say we've had a tremendous uh, time tonight on the beat. I'd like to bring all of our fine guests.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, vocalist and guitarist uh, Barbara Lynn uh, with the track entitled It's Better to Have It and uh, Live Performance and uh, right now we want to move uh, in greater detail uh in explaining the situation in the republic of sudan where uh, over the last uh, three months uh, there has been uh, fierce fighting between the two dominant military structures inside the country the sudanese armed forces uh, versus, the, versus the rapid support forces have been clashing since uh april the 15th and of course uh It's estimated that uh, several thousand people have been killed Uh, two million or more have been dislocated Uh, hundreds of thousands have had to flee across the border uh, into Chad uh, South Sudan as well as Egypt let's listen uh, to this report on uh, some recent developments in the Republic
0: The UN is warning Sudan is on the brink of a full-scale civil war that could destabilize the entire region. A fighting between rival generals shows no sign of easing. In the latest flare-up, an airstrike on a residential area in the city of Omdurman killed at least 22 civilians. It's one of the worst attacks in the three-month conflict. The fighting between Sudan's military ruler and a powerful paramilitary group has already displaced about 3 million people. Egypt is to host a summit of Sudan's neighbors next week. I asked journalist Naba Mohideen in Sudan who might have carried out this attack.
6: Uh, actually, Monica, it's really hard to know who carried out the attack because the two sides and the two white right factions are accusing each other of this attack, but a lot of eyewitnesses are also accusing the RSF of uh, carrying atta- uh, the attack are accusing the military instead. So uh, the Sudanese military just denied uh, the air strike uh, attack, and they said the RSF uh, are accusing them after attacking civilians um, uh, by saying that whenever the military air force or aircraft Uh, are flying in the sky of the capital. They are carrying out ground attacks and killing civilians and accusing the military. Uh, So they embarrass them and they have a lot of press cards in order to negotiate with the military. So right now it's really difficult to know who are carrying out the attacks. But a lot of eyewitnesses, Monica said that RSF um, carried out that attack and actually uh, it's not very weird because RSF used to uh, attack civilians in a lot of places, not only in the capital but also in Western, Darfur and Kurdistan. So it's Hmm. difficult to know, but we can likely figure out who can carry out such uh, such attacks.
0: Right. But of course uh, the United Nations warning that Sudan could now be on the brink of a full-scale civil war. Do you agree with that assessment?
6: Of course, I agree with that, and we are feeling uh, the uh, uh, the seeds, or we can see the flame, see the flames of the civil war, because right now there is a lot of uh, speeches, uh, a lot of. Uh, Calls for that civil war, and it, it has already started in that four region in western that Algenena, and in northern Kurdistan. The clashes there, Monica, have morphed into tribal clashes, and there is a lot of calls to morph it into a wider and extended uh, civil war. So we are expecting now. I am in a safe place in Algeria state, but we are expecting an extended um, civil war and uh, ethnic uh, vi- uh, violations or. Violence, sorry. Uh, so yes, it's definitely a, a right warning and we are expecting it any time and there, there will not be any safe uh, place in the country.
0: Well, that's a, a very dire uh, Picture you're painting there of course. Is there anything anyone be it the international community or the two warring factions Anyone who could prevent uh, a full-scale civil war or is that just a given now?
6: Actually, Monica, it's not too late for the two right factions to make a compromise to stop this chaotic war, but it depends on their political uh, willingness, whether they will uh, figure out that this war will uh, will burn everything and that will... If this war extended, we will never even find Sudan that they are worrying uh, about. So, yes, definitely, the two white factions and the two generals figured out and uh, uh, knew that uh, this chaotic war will not lead to anything. We will definitely see them on negotiation table. But regarding the civil war, uh there is no guarantee that it can be prevented or avoided but uh of course, Sudanese people who rejected um a dictatorship and uh, ousted Al Bashir after 30 years of rule, and they went uh, in a very peaceful um, revolution, and they already sacrificed it, uh, sacrificed a lot of uh, things by their souls, by their properties, and now a war in the capital. Definitely, we are expecting that the Sudanese will reject any calls to fight into a civil war. But that depends on the conflict. If it's prolonged, if regional or international players, um, of course, uh, played a role in prolonging the conflict, definitely uh, the civil war cannot be avoided, Monica.
0: All right. Journalist Naba Muhideen uh, reporting for us uh, in Sudan. Uh, Naba, thank you so much. Take care of yourself and the attacks in Sudan have been sparking a mass exodus of refugees who'd originally fled fighting in their own country of South Sudan. It's marking 12 years of independence today since breaking away from Sudan in 2011. It followed years of civil war. The country has one of Africa's most diverse populations and ethnic fighting is ongoing despite a 2018 peace deal that ushered in a unity government. President Salva Kiir recently pledged that the nation's first elections, which have been repeatedly delayed, will take place by the end of next year. DW has been speaking to some of those forced to make the dangerous trip home.
7: They travelled for days, dodging bullets and death, and not for the first time. They're from South Sudan but left a decade ago, when their country was tearing itself apart. Back then, they fled to what is now Sudan, but now there's a civil war there, so they've come back home, back to where they started.
8: I did not think I would come back home because South Sudan is still in crisis. I can't find the words to describe the journey home. Many people were shot dead, others died because of starvation. Many were trapped in shelters without food. It was hard.
7: Each returnee has a story to tell.
9: When the war broke out
4: we gathered in khartoum and decided that we had to leave and get our families out we bought a car took our things and went to the border with south sudan there we ran into shiluk tribe who started fighting us some lost their lives some children died we then came here by boat down the white nile it took us six days
7: each day, hundreds of new arrivals are registered in the north of the country. They come by plane or car, or by boat, crossing the floodwaters that have recently devastated South Sudan. So far, more than 26,000 South Sudanese returnees have made it to Ruriak, an IDP camp not far from Bentu. But their struggle doesn't end here.
10: They're running after war. They, they need a lot of uh, things. Mm-hmm. They, they, some of them, they are sick. Uh, even now, they are in hospital, they need assistance with uh, medicine, they need enough food, they need shelters.
7: All of which are in short supply, here and elsewhere. South Sudan is facing the worst humanitarian crisis since independence 12 years ago. Millions of people are internally displaced, hunger is widespread, and the situation is made worse by political insecurity, conflict and the effects of climate change these south sudanese returnees now have to figure out their next move in their search for safety they had left south sudan and tried to build a better life in sudan some hope to return to friends and family but many others face an uncertain future
1: welcome back and uh, that was uh, the analysis related to the regional impact of uh, the internal fighting that's taking place now has been taking place since April fifteenth in the Republic of sudan and uh in another report that we want to uh, do an analysis of the twelve year independence of South Sudan uh prior uh, to twenty eleven uh Sudan was united uh it was the largest geographic nation state on the African continent since the partition of uh, the Republic of South Sudan, uh, neither country has been able to find uh, its equilibrium in regard to uh, development issues, uh, internal crises, as well as uh, a productive and progressive foreign policy. Let's listen to a report on developments in the Republic of South Sudan after 12 years of independence.
10: Let's now turn to the world's youngest nation, South Sudan. The East African country became independent 12 years ago on the 9th of July, 2011. Finally, we are free, was a feeling many South Sudanese shared on that day. That's after decades of civil war between the North and the South over demands for more regional autonomy by Southern Sudan. President Salva Kerr promised a more stable, peaceful and prosperous nation. So how has South Sudan fared after its independence? Let's find out.
11: In 2011, when the people of South Sudan split from Sudan, Africa's largest country at the time, they wanted a future free of oppression and conflict. It had been a painful journey, and independence provided a chance for freedom from Arab rule and for the unity of their own ethnic groups under one nation.
4: A happy day like this should not dwell on the bad memories but it is important to recognize that for many generations this land has seen untold suffering and death we have been bombed, maimed, enslaved and treated worse than a refugee in our own country but we have to forgive although we will not
11: forget. The new dawn also allowed them to pin their hopes of economic prosperity on their country's vast supplies of oil previously controlled by the North. But it didn't take long for things to go wrong. Breaking away should have birthed a nation united but South Sudan only found division mainly along ethnic lines As different factions fought, they terrorized their fellow citizens. The UN and human rights groups want key figures in the fighting, investigated for war crimes. Corruption had also entrenched itself in the country, channeling oil wealth intended for the people's future to a select elite. Transparency International ranks South Sudan as the third most corrupt country globally, trailing only Somalia and Syria. The struggle for power has challenged South Sudan's stability. Salva Kiir has been the president since independence. He's announced the country's first elections will take place next year. The exercise will be a major test of South Sudan's standing as a democracy. So far, it has struggled to convince.
10: The years of fighting displaced millions of South Sudanese, but many are now returning. So far this year, more than 130,000 people have made their way back home. However, they are now confronted with a new danger, the lurking threat of unexploded landmines and bombs, remnants of a war-torn past. This school in
12: Ye, in the very south of the country, was almost deserted two months ago. But as families return home from refugee camps in neighboring Uganda, the classrooms are filling with life again.
6: Then you touch the
12: wire. Today's lesson, landmines and bombs, and how to avoid them.
6: When they're underground, they may stay for years, but they don't expire, Okay? It will only expire when you step on it, then it
9: explodes. After
12: decades of war, much of this land is still heavily contaminated. One wrong step could be deadly.
9: This is a picture of a bomb.
12: This NGO is traveling the country to warn the new returnees. After the lesson, the teachers show the team a suspicious object they found in the school's backyard.
5: It's a small ammunition. It here,
12: Another team will come to destroy the grenade before a child picks it up. Finds like this are common here. Removing them all, an enormous task. This team of the Mine Advisory Group, an NGO, has been called to investigate this field. After scanning the ground, they start digging. Today's find, dangerous cluster ammunition, buried only 40 centimeters underground.
4: This is very dangerous. Yeah, it's very dangerous. It's not touchable. It's not movable also at the same time. This, when we find like this, and then we just destroy the same area.
0: We cannot move it yet.
12: We're now hiding out under a tree roughly 200 meters away from where the teams just found the cluster ammunition. And from here, They're going to press this button to explode the bomb safely. Nearby, Nicholas and his family are waiting to farm their land again. They returned home from Uganda in February, ten years after fleeing the civil war. But they
8: can't start work because of the unexploded mines. First I want to build, then I cultivate for my family, so that they get food and from there also when I, I, I cultivate enough food, part of it I will sell when I get some income so that I pay school fee for my children.
12: Food was scarce in Uganda after aid rations were cut, but people returning to South Sudan are finding it even harder.
8: Now people in terrible situation, they are fearing to come back in South Sudan not because there is a war, but they are fearing because of food security. There is no food.
12: More than 100,000 people have also returned from Sudan because of the war that started there in April. Many end up in camps like this one. The people living in the camp here in the capital Juba are still waiting to return home. But it's too dangerous. Conflict, floods and food insecurity keep them away. And their very own land that's still contaminated with
4: bombs
12: and landmines. Lamjo is the chairman of this camp for internally displaced people. He arrived here 10 years ago, forced out of his village by heavy fighting.
4: Where I'm
10: from, there are a lot of bombs and mines, yet some people are returning, those coming from Sudan even though the place isn't safe. I've heard of a lot of injuries, but there are no people to guide them and tell them what to look out for.
4: South
12: Sudan is hoping to clear all anti-personal minefields and cluster munitions by 2026. An unlikely goal, given more and more contaminated areas, are discovered almost every day.
10: For more on this, let's bring in Nyagwa Tutfu, a South Sudan researcher for Human Rights Watch. Hello, thanks for joining us. Now, after 12 years of South Sudan's independence, what is there to celebrate?
9: Um, Thanks for having me today. Well, I think that's a tricky question and the the response will depend on who you ask in South Sudan. Um, For many uh, who are the elites who might be in power, um, the answer might be that there's a lot to be celebrated, um, and maybe a lot of South Sudanese will also say that there is a lot to be celebrated, given that the independence itself came from long years of struggle, long years of sacrifice, um, and a self-determination of a, a people who had been marginalized and oppressed by the Sudanese regime for a very long time. But for others who have endured um, uh, suffering and human rights abuses um, and all sorts of feeling that the liberation and independence did not achieve the goal that it was meant to, which is to create a democratic, prosperous, uh, and free society, um, then they will say that there's not much to be celebrated uh, 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 now that the country is going into its 12th year of independence.
10: Mm. I mean, you say it so eloquently because there has been a lot of challenges and there continues to be challenges. Do uh, you get an overall sense that uh, uh, the independence has been worth it if you talk to people generally?
9: Well... Where South Sudan is right now, uh, in as much as the talk will be about celebration of independence, the country is also at a very precarious time uh, in its history. Uh, We all know that there's a transitional government of national unity, uh, which is uh, um, based off uh, previous transitional governments that collapsed in 2016. And this transitional government is supposed to usher in elections and a transition uh, and a different kind of democratic transition. So South Sudan right Now, it is at the edge of a precipice um, where a lot of South Sudanese are wondering and a bit anxious about what the end of this transitional government at the end of 2024 means for both security, stability, um, individual prosperity, and uh, so many other things. So, right now, uh, because of what's happening uh, in Sudan um, and that the South Sudanese pound has not been performing well for a very long time... The cost of living is very high for majority of South Sudanese. There's also conflicts in certain parts of the country, sporadic fighting, Mm -hmm. um, whether that is intercommunal violence or where we see governments and opposition actors um, using proxy militias uh, to gain, to make certain military gains in areas such as Upper Nile. And we saw that also in Southern Unity last year. Um, so there is there is a lot that South Sudanese are wondering about on a daily basis other than whether the independence was worth it.
10: Mm, which is fair enough. I mean, you mentioned quite a lot of the challenges, the issue of landmines, serious refugee crisis, economic challenges, unstable political situation. What needs to happen to improve the situation in the country?
9: Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, first of all, there's a humanitarian crisis um, that is largely a man-made crisis. A man-made crisis generated by the fact that you have a government that is unaccountable uh, in terms of dispensing its duty to provide for the general population. Much of that duty has been left to humanitarian agencies humanitarian agencies who are struggling to meet the needs of nearly 7 million people in the country uh, um, Who are either either because they are displaced uh, because of fighting uh, whether that is current or previous fighting uh, that has made uh, people's home areas um, uh, People unable to reach their home areas for fear of more fighting or insecurity or that there's nothing back uh, in the home areas that they fled or that um, or that they are displaced by floods. Now, South Sudan has faced uh, nearly three or four years of severe flooding in certain areas such as Southern Unity uh, and other parts of the country. And this um, climate-induced displacement has also had an impact um, on the humanitarian situation in the country. But there's a general rights record uh, that the country has yet to uh, uh, turn a page on, uh, where you have majority or uh, where you have uh, perpetrators, uh, much of whom are in the government, who have not been held to account for the many abuses that have been committed since war broke out in 2013. Mm. Um, so there, there, there is there there are tremendous, tremendous challenges, and the government itself has yet to meet. Um, uh, certain milestones that they have to achieve in order to, for instance, conduct elections at the the end of 2024, um, or even to build institutions, to rebuild certain institutions that are necessary uh, for South Sudan to transition into a democratic state, to ensure justice and accountability, uh, including transitional justice mechanisms, um, or to even ensure service delivery
10: so you touched on that a bit so let's let's hammer on that because you're right south Sudanese the president Salvatore recently promised the country's first elections in 2024 since its independence from sudan in 2011. is that what the country needs to move forward
9: well south sudan has not had elections since 2010 since they uh since south sudan separated from from sudan and the 2010 elections are have this backdrop that were mostly, they were not free or fair, uh, most uh, smaller political parties were marginalized and crushed, um, and results of various electoral uh, area, uh, districts were disputed, but there were no credible institutions to handle those disputes. Uh, violence broke out. Uh, there were insurrections in places like Jonglei uh, as a result of those elections. So. Elections are part of the 2018 peace deal. The 2018 peace deal, which the transitional government is uh, currently implementing, demands that there be elections at the end of 2024 uh, to usher in a, de- because what, what is existing in South Sudan right now is a, a power sharing government uh, based on the belligerents that were fighting uh, and some of whom were not fighting uh, um, uh, the war. And so the elections are required by the peace bill. Now the question is how is South Sudan going to conduct those elections if there is no census, if, there is no, if the electoral body is not yet reconstituted, um, if, the de- uh, if the constituencies and other demographic factors are not, uh, are not put in place, if there is ongoing insecurity um, in certain places in the country, how is everybody going to be able to vote to ensure that the election is not only going to be credible, but of integrity, um, and that it will reflect the views of the majority? Okay. We're yet to see who who he is going to run against, but what we've seen is also um, a a lack of political and civic space, where over the years civil society has not had freedom of expression, freedom of opinion on specific controversial issues uh, uh, um, touching on matters of governance or human rights, but also political parties um, that are not the SPLM have been dwarfed and cowed into silence and inactivity.
10: Clearly, a lot needs to be done to get South Sudan, the youngest country in the world, back on track. Nyagua Tutpu, South Sudan resetter for Human Rights Watch. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your time. No matter the challenges in South Sudan, sports has proven to be a unifying force. Against all odds, the youngest country in the world has made history by qualifying for the 2023 FIBA Basketball World Cup in their very first attempt, the achievement has also made kids fall in love with the game. Our reporter met with some of them in the capital, Juba.
12: We're at the Deng Basketball Academy in Juba. The former South Sudanese NBA star built a school for hundreds of children and teenagers from across the country. One of them is 17-year-old Tasha.
13: Come on, Julie. My brothers used to play, and every time I'm there watching them, but I don't play. I just realized how much my brothers were having, but every time they come home, they talk about basketball, and they made my love for it also to grow.
12: But girls playing basketball? In South Sudan, that's quite unusual. No! Tasha had to bring two coaches to her house so that her parents would allow her to train. When the academy finally started a girls' league, more and more women signed up.
13: But now I think of more than 100. The number keeps increasing every time because Everybody wants to play.
12: Now that the national team is headed for the World Cup, basketball is becoming ever more popular. Growing up in South Sudan isn't easy. The young country has been embroiled in a deadly civil war for most of its existence, while poverty and crime rule the streets. Basketball
5: helps to forget. Sometimes surprise when you sit down one on one, some people been touched by the war, the real star. You know? So we change it. It's like authority
1: for them, some of the kids.
12: But for Michael, basketball can achieve even more, especially in a country as divided as South Sudan.
1: These
5: little balls can change people's perception in South Sudan. We have so many ethnicities, call it tribes, what do you say here, all South Sudan, we don't preach tribes. This is another thing we tell them, you got brothers and sisters.
12: Most players in the national team grew up abroad, but in the future more talents will come directly from South Sudan.
13: I want to play basketball professionally, I want to play basketball to I The NBA level or something of that kind. But first, I'm looking forward and hoping I could one day play for the South Sudan women's national team. Yeah, I'm that much of a patriot. I want to be able to present my country. I want people see me, they know that I'm a citizen of South Sudan.
12: Until then, the kids and coaches will keep training and working towards their dreams
7: of a peaceful and unified South Sudan.
1: Welcome back. And that was a report on uh, the situation in the Republic of South Sudan uh, 12 years uh, after uh, partitioning of the country from uh, the Republic of Sudan. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with our concluding segments uh, for this week. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for uh, today, uh, which is Sunday, uh, July 9th, uh, 2023. Uh, That was the voice of uh, Candy Staten. And uh, right now, we want to move into our segment uh, on South Africa, the African National Congress National Executive Committee uh, has briefed uh, through its Economic Transformation Subcommittee uh, the meeting uh, in uh, that is taking place this weekend in the Republic of South Africa in regard to the leadership of the ruling party. Let's listen uh, to this briefing uh, discussing uh, the economic uh, situation in the Republic of South Africa.
11: The ANC's National Executive Committee's Economic Transformation Subcommittee Media Briefing at the Birchwood Hotel is currently underway, let's take you there now live.
8: This morning, um, just to appraise members of the public around the work that we've been doing, we've got several issues that we're dealing with regularly um, and we present to the National Executive Committee as part of our work in the subcommittee. We are dealing this weekend, as Comrade said has said, um, we're dealing with various topics that we are presenting before the, sub, uh, the NEC as the subcommittee. I'll just give you highlight, but we'll focus on two today. Um, we're dealing with, firstly, the issue around electricity, energy security. As you would have known in the last briefing of the NEC, we committed that every month or every time the NEC meets... We will provide an update to the NEC um, on the energy security because this is one of the areas that conference said we must act and we must act immediately. The second area of briefing will be focused on the issues around employment equity labor laws, um, and that you would understand that it has been an issue in the public domain. This precisely because we have feedback from our constituencies. That tends to have confusion about what we intend to do, um, asking us if we are abandoning the non-racial character of the ANC. But secondly, those who are within our context in working with us and are wanting to understand what is it that the ANC government has signed between ourselves and also the solidarity uh, organization, where you'd understand in terms of our multi-forces, people would not define solidarity as part of our multi-forces. So it is important for us to be able to address that, and that's why we have the two comrades who are both members of the subcommittee of the NEC, both in terms of their deployment and work. We and understand that the subcommittee has extended its work beyond just members of the NEC, but other colleagues or comrades who are in government are deployed within the portfolios that are within the economic space, but also other extended people. So we'll also brief the NEC on issues around cost of living and inflation. We'll also brief the NEC around issues of transformation, triple evaluation, which we have done. We had a mini-workshop as the subcommittee. So those will come later and the spokesperson will guide in how we deal with it. But that's broadly the work that we are doing, more interested in what we have received as um, any directive from conference, from our structures, on what this energy must be able to focus on. So we continue with that work. So I'm going to agree, um, ask Comrade Spuja to first um, brief you on the update around energy security because you'd understand that this is what would drive economic development and the recovery of our economy. And then immediately, Comrade Julius will come in on the issues around implement um, equity laws, and then we'll take questions um, from that point, Comrade speaker over to
4: you. Thank you very much, Comrade uh, Mamuloko. And uh, just to to say, emphasise the point that Comrade uh, Mamuloko was making, and that is the uh, energy, electricity is a permanent feature of uh, of uh, the agenda items of uh, of the NEC. Um, the ANC had identified six priority areas. So the president unveiled the statement of the National Executive Committee on the occasion of uh, our anniversary, the January 8 uh, statement, uh, and one of those is uh, uh, ending load shedding. Um, so the last time when we met as the NEC, we we had presented a picture of uh, the, the energy landscape, electricity landscape, and at the time we
3: were
4: <coughs> able to share with the NEC what we refer to as the winter outlook, uh, and I want to just uh, provide you with the, the update, and this is the same update that is given to, to the NEC. The first one was that in relation to the winter outlook, we had uh, generated three scenarios. The first was the best case scenario. The best case in this instance means that they were able to rein in the low shading, and in fact we keep it at the lower levels of uh, intensity. Um, and then there's a middle case scenario and then there's a worst case scenario. So there were two um, primary assumptions that uh, underpin uh, the generation of the scenarios. The first one was that on the worst case scenario was that the uh, the levels of uh, the reliability and the efficiency of the units will not improve. So the last time when we were here, uh, the energy availability factor was uh, uh, hoovering at about 48.5%. Uh, uh, and that's a combination of a number of things. The first one was that the, the number of, uh, of trips and the regularity of those trips will take out about uh, 18,000 plus uh, megawatts of uh, generating capacity. So that was uh, uh, the first uh, index in relation to, or variable in relation to the worst case scenario. The second, um, in, the in relation to the worst case scenario was that the demand was going to peak at about uh, 34,000 megawatts. So essentially the gap between uh, uh, generation and demand will be such that uh, we're likely going to experience uh, the intensity of load shedding above what was the previously recorded historic high of uh, stage six of load shedding. And that's why when I was here, I did indicate the last time that uh, uh, the probability of going to stage 8 was real if uh, we are not able to tamper with the, the improvement in relation to the generation capacity and also we are unable to uh, lower down the demand. Uh, so that's the scenario we painted and I also shared with the NEC and uh, yourselves and the country the measures that we are taking to address uh, in the short, immediate term rather um, the uh, the realization of uh, of that worst case scenario how we undermine uh, the occurrence of that scenario so the first one was uh, to continue to work with escom and improve the energy availability factor and on that i'm happy to to say to you that uh, we have made uh, tremendous strides and like i said we're sitting at about 48% uh, the last time when i was here of the energy availability factor and now we are stabilizing at about 60% uh, uh, of the energy availability factor. And what have we done to at- attain those with have uh, isolated uh, uh, the most notorious power stations? Notoriety in this instance means those power stations that have got um, an installed uh, capacity that is uh, significantly higher. Uh, so I'm talking about those power stations that they've uh, got pegs, of for uh, I'm, I'm referring to u- unit of generation of uh, 600 megawatts and, and plus. Uh, uh, and then secondly, the, the, those power stations are the ones that uh, uh, are giving us uh, low levels of, uh, of EAF, so we identified those uh, power stations. And then also identified uh, the problems about the individual units whether it's a boiler tube leak, you, you can mention the kind of uh, technical failures that can re- result in the units being taken out. And then we work with ESCOM, including mobilizing private sector expertise uh, to be embedded in those uh, power stations. Uh, and of course, the, the major uh, occurrence that has happened between the last briefing to the NEC and now is that we have appointed the new head of generation, Mr. Begin Numa, who's got the... Um, impeccable credentials um, comes uh, highly recommended. Someone who has worked uh, through the ranks of ESCOM previously before his uh, current stint as the head of generation. He was the head of Rotech, which is the engineering arm of uh, of uh, ESCOM. And then we have succeeded also working with the, that leadership to also get, the, uh, if you like, uh, people with the, the best experience inside ESCOM to be in the leadership of uh, some of these uh, stations that uh, are notorious for underperformance. And as I speak to you now, like I said, we have lifted the energy availability factor by 12 uh, percentage points. Just to put that into context, um, one percentage point really amounts to about 477 uh, megawatts of additional generating uh, capacity, Um, and that's why now we we are attaining a the average levels that are just below, shy of, uh, of uh, 30,000 megawatts, the availability factor, and we've been able to maintain that over a period of time, and that's why uh, the country has been observing uh, a situation where about two thirds of uh, of the day we are not experiencing load shedding, or in instances where we do, we are able to keep that to stage one load shedding, and then we go to stage three. So that has been the. The permutation that we have been keeping uh, for the past three weeks or so that uh, uh, communicates one big message is that we are succeeding in uh, maintaining those uh, uh, levels of efficiency, which uh, is something that uh, uh, has been uh, has been failing us and then the second part was also on the how we bend the diesel the open cycle uh, gas turbines. Uh, although uh, we have uh, been uh, in the midst and the throes of winter, uh, we have not been uh, banning it at the rate that we thought we we'll would be banning it. So we have been able to save, uh, uh, if you like, uh, the ESCOM fiscal some money, and then we will engage them um, when, as and when they are required. We know in the next two weeks we will be entering uh, uh, one of the coldest periods during the winter, and in fact uh, the projections are that. Monday uh, is <coughs> going to be the coldest day recorded this so far in this winter period. So we'll see how we perform. And I, I was making the point at the NEC that the best measure is not where we are in relation to the stages of load shedding. The best measure is on the performance of those units. As long as we are able to maintain them at 60% and 60 plus, we'll be able to provide relief. And then in conclusion, we are also flagging the fact that the. Of course, we we are going to see this recovery, the improvement, and then there are those units at Kusile that will come on stream. Uh, Unit 5, we we project to fire it by October. Unit 1, 2, 3, which was affected by the flue gas desulfurization, and we have gotten the exemptions from DFFE, uh, those will be fired uh, by uh, uh, the first one uh, late November, the second one early December, and then the third one on the 24th of December, and if you put those together. We're talking uh, upwards of uh, 3,000 megawatts, so essentially you're talking uh, about six percentage points. If you use that uh, uh, computation, I told you about one percentage point is uh, 477 megawatts. And like I said, in conclusion, we are questioning about the future. The future is that if you don't address the transmission side of generation, we are likely going to end up in even a much worse uh, case scenario than is the case now. So that's the first part. The second part is about um, uh, the energy resources. Uh, so uh, we know there are issues around uh, the gas supply um, that we are drawing from Mozambique. I think that contract, the uh, that it has, is likely to go is projected to run out uh, in the near future, I think the next two to three years. And therefore the reliability of a uh, of, uh, gas supply is at risk. So it's important that we plan now about the about the future so that we don't compromise the sovereignty energy sovereignty of the country but overall i think we we making the we are surpassing our expectation in, re, in relation to the performance of the units and we are more than confident that uh, uh, we should be able to survive the winter will not experience the worst case scenario as we had projected and will continue to see the improvements and i'm very confident that load shedding will be behind us uh, very soon, and then we we'll now begin to work on uh, uh, creating uh, an additional buffer um, uh, reserve margins to allow the economy to grow at the desired level. Thank you very much,
8: Let's move to the <laughs>
5: <Okay. Can you>? <laughs> 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 I think we're fine. Thank you. Thanks to Comrade Machine, Comrade Mamluku and Comrade Jamukhpa. The one of the central mandates of the African National Congress is to transform the economy. And the Employment Equity Act, it's one of the measures, it's one of the measures which are meant to transform the economy. And it is against that background that the President signed the amendments to the Employment Equity Act at the beginning of this year, but what prompted that, remember that this Act came in 1998, but an attempt to implement what we call the constitutional requirement to bring about equity and equal opportunity in the workplace has been very, very slow. Our reports from the Employment Equity Commission are indicating that we're moving at a very small space, especially at the level of management. And this has been particularly at the expense or at the cost of the Africans, the colours, the women and the people with disabilities. It's for that reason that we have these amendments. And all the amendments are doing, instead of saying these targets must be voluntary by the employers themselves, it makes them mandatory now. But it's not unilateral action from the minister. So the minister is empowered to set the sectoral targets. In consultation with the sectors. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So that's where we are coming from. That background is very important. And then we've been forced to draft the regulations, which are sort of the guidelines on how people have to implement that those regulations have been put for public comment, we have received responses which were consolidating, and once we've been able to consolidate that and see if there's a need to adjust the guidelines as per the public comments, we will do so. That is before there's a proclamation by the President But there is also another interesting uh, background which you must know: is Solidarity, the Solidarity Union, has always been the biggest critic of employment equity and even affirmative action. This is evidenced by the various court challenges which we have gone through. Some we have won, some Solidarity has won, because they were not exactly the same. So there is a body of case law in relation to this particular question. Solidarity also filed a complaint, a complaint against the Republic of South Africa government under the ILO Article twenty four, alleging that the implementation of employment equity and affirmative action in South Africa It's non-compliant with the ILO convention number 111 on discrimination and occupations and employment. What the ILO did in November last year, this was filed some time back, but in November last year, the ILO requested the parties that is the Government and Solidarity Union of South Africa to consider a national mediation process aimed at resolving the dispute. And this is the first time this is happening, that when there is such a complaint, instead of being referred for the dispute committees to deal with it. The dispute committee said we've come up with a new procedure to allow the parties in dispute to see if they cannot cannot resolve those issues through the mediation. Because we have a very strong mechanism in South Africa in the form of the CCMA, this matter the CCMA was requested to mediate on this matter, and CCMA mediated and we had the results out of the mediation. That's how we signed an agreement with solidarity. But I must emphasize, there is nothing in the agreement which is already, or which is not already included in the Constitution, in the employment uh, legislation, and the regulation, although this has been willfully ignored by Solidarity and some of the opposition parties, in particular the DA and the FF+. The only thing considered by Solidarity in terms of the need of the affirmative action is it is, affirmative action is of a temporal nature trying to explain that to them. So no one then should be surprised. But I must, I must say, what does this agreement say? What does it mean? This agreement means that once we have signed that, it provides that policy uncertainty. And it also says, we're not talking about a one-size-fits-all which will be imposed on the companies. There are a number of conditions they have to meet. There are even conditions where they can justify non-compliance. That's in the deck. But here is another controversial issue, which I think uh, the chair of the ETC, Comrade Kupai, has raised. There have been an issue about, are we trying to balkanize this country? the issue of the demographics. If you look at STATS-SA, whenever it releases the employment figures, they will talk about economically active population, both nationally and provincially. Because we are sitting with a situation in South Africa where the patterns of settlement were racialized. You have a particular concentration of the color people in the Western Cape and even Northern Cape. You can talk about that around the urban region of the Indian people. So when companies are dealing with the employment targets, they have to take that into consideration. They can use the national demographics or the provincial de- demographics. That's there in the law, not in the regulations. We're just expressing how they have to be implemented. And I want to emphasize, no one from any ethnic groups would lose their job. This would be illegal and unconstitutional, it would be against the law. And lastly, at an international level, it will be for the first time, I want to emphasize, it will be the first time since the ILO introduced this national mediation approach that an ILO member state has successfully mediated a dispute and reached a settlement without having to appear before the International Labour Conference Committee on Labour Standards. And as such, it's setting us as an exemplar on how to use remediation internationally. And and at a national level, clearly the recently launched or lodged a labor court case by the Solidarity and the Freedom Front, which is supporting that, it falls away after the agreement. Solidarity has said that. They would like it to be made a court order. That's it. And unfortunately, Freedom Front has no case to support now. The DA which is also trying to do that, they will be on their own on that. That's what we, we are dealing with here. We wanted to clarify that. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Should I put
14: it in the middle? Yeah, should I put it in the middle? It's
3: easy.
14: okay. It's a little texting to move it around. Thank you very much. We have listened to the EPC chair and the two colleagues. I wish to now invite questions from the uh, left. I will start this side, as I see, and then move right along. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I would going to you to the chairman of EPC, also to the EPP, also responsible for uh, the issue pertaining to.
11: Well, we come out of uh, that press briefing there by the Economic, Subcommittee, the Economic Transformation Subcommittee of uh, the ANC, as the ANC's NEC meeting is uh, still ongoing. A number of issues there that have been highlighted, including the status of uh, our electricity supply, looking at the energy availability factor, which has improved over the past couple of months, and also the contention over the Employment Equity Act, which is now, of course, before the courts.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from the ruling African National Congress of South Africa National Executive Committee, uh, which is meeting uh, this weekend in the Republic of South Africa. Also, uh, earlier today, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa had a media engagement. Uh, It was broadcast live over the South African Broadcasting Corporation. We're going to bring you uh, the audio portion uh, of uh, this engagement Let's
0: listen in. Well, the ANC National Executive Committee meeting is still underway in Boxford, east of Johannesburg, This, as the country begins to gear up for the general elections that will be taking place next year. There's a briefing that's currently underway. Let's take your live there. Yes,
3: with
0: you. But also,
14: to reflect on the outcomes of the three-day National Executive Committee meeting that is about today's uh, session but uh, a big part of the work has been done. And uh, with that, Mr. President, I also want to say we are joined here. I was going to read out the number, but it will take us a lot of the time that uh, I ensure several uh, um, media colleagues are keen to get into a Q&A. This is not a press briefing, it's a conversation. So we going to keep things light, we're going to keep things conversational, uh, but of course we also have to manage the time so that the President is excused at the right time to go into the National Influential Committee. And I will try and facilitate as best as possible so that everyone has the right. And, and um, so that is that, having done so. For those that don't you know me, my name is Mashei Deyumutsiri. I'm member of the National Influential Committee of the ASB and he's appointed National Sports Person.
3: With that, let me hand over to the president for his introductory remarks.